Now, what we're going to be doing is talking about the messiness of human relationships. There's multiple spheres that we operate in. We operate in an emotional way. We operate in a physical way. One of the things that Christianity highlights is the social sphere, the relational sphere. As a matter of fact, the majority of the New Testament is pastors telling their churches, hey, you guys, there's a learning curve to this, but we don't act like the rest of the world. I need to tell you how to interact with God and how to interact with one another because it's very, very different than from maybe where some of us came from. So what we're gonna do is I have three parts to the message today. The first part is a super long intro. I'm just warning you now. By the time I get down to the, the fill in the blank is, you're gonna be like, oh my gosh, he's been talking so long. Okay, I get it. That was already accounted for, right? You're gonna be all right. You'll still get to lunch or whatever you're gonna do. Second thing, we're gonna get in the book of James and we have a passage to go through. Now, let me say something about James. James preaches itself. If you ever hear a pastor teach out of the book of James and you go, dang, he's a really good preacher. No, no, he's not. It's, the book teaches itself. You could have a moron up here and preach a message on James and it's amazing, all right? So always hold off and decide whether or not the pastor's any good, not by the book of James, all right? James is amazing, it's gonna transform your life. Then the last thing we're gonna do is we're going to spend an extended time of prayer where we're gonna invite God to help heal some of our relational mess, right? I think that if we all thought about it, we all have some relational mess, whether that's something we've done to others, maybe there's some grief or loss, maybe it's uh, the hurt from your past that others have done to you and you're having a hard time moving on. Whatever that is, we're gonna have an extended time to allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us deep in those places. So we will be doing all of that in a very short amount of time. Now, uh, even though my intro is long, you're need, gonna need to have a Bible. So take out your Bible, just have that on your lap. We're gonna be in the book of James today. James chapter two, verse one. We are in part three of our James series entitled Discovering Practical Christianity. And I entitled today's message, Book and Cover. All right, so let's talk about the messy people part of Christianity. The learning curve is that Christianity introduces a new dynamic, a new reality. And it is all based on one premise. The standard for any given Christian is Jesus himself. That's a high bar, yes? If you think you're already there, I've spoken to your spouse, you're not. <laughs> right? Like I can even see it from here, you are damaged. You understand what I'm saying? Like, I can even see it from far away. All right. We are not quite where yet Jesus is. So there's a lot of growth to happen. There's a lot of transformation that needs to occur. And we have to lean into that transformation. And, and what I'm about to say, I need you to really consider strongly. Just because we are Christians doesn't mean we are healthy individuals. Okay. What I mean by that is Jesus may have fixed your spirit, but there's other things that need to still be transformed, yeah? Just because Jesus died for our sins doesn't mean the trauma of our past doesn't need to be dealt with. 
right? Oh, I got my Jesus, I got my Bible, I got my journal, I'm good. No, hold up. The Holy Spirit is telling you that he does healing through social dynamics and community. You actually need another person to talk it out with. What has happened to you, what is going on with you, you need to process. No, 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 I got Jesus, I'm okay. Hold up, if Jesus by himself was sufficient to process everything, he would not have said, confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. There is a communal dynamic that can lead to your restoration. In other words, there's some of us, we need to see a counselor. There, you know, I wish we had the money to give everybody a therapist on speed dial. Yes. Amen, man, I want them to follow you around, right? Walk through Walmart going, man, I don't know why you lashed out at that person. <laughs> They're marking it on their little chart, right? They're like, goodness, you are operating out of your brokenness. <laughs> they write that down. Because I just feel like we'd be a lot healthier if we actually process some stuff out. But unfortunately, a lot of us just shove that way deep down inside. Oh, I moved on. No, you didn't. You think you did because you're not thinking about it. That does not mean you moved on. If you didn't process it, it's probably not dealt with. Just because you locked it into what you believe to be an impenetrable part of your heart does not mean it's not bleeding out. Just because the Holy Spirit is working overtime to sanctify us does not mean that we are mature people. I'm always surprised when people come into the church and they're like, oh, Christians. I think what you mean is, oh, people. <laughs> right? I mean, it's not the fact that we're Christians that's the problem. I think it's the fact that we're people is the problem. Because we're all over the place. Right, you go into a church, you're like, I can't believe you lashed out at me. I thought you were a Christian. Hold up. Just because Jesus died for my sins does not automatically make me mature, healthy, able to interact properly. I may not even have life skills, but Jesus still rescued me. And so we need to be very careful of our assumptions on one another, right? That, that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you do everything right. It's why I did not put a Christian fish on my wife's car. <laughs> she simply cannot park. I don't know why that we need to understand that we're all still in process. Like there's things that we need to engage with and things that we need to deal with, right? Because we're still growing up. So a lot of dysfunction in a church is that the people that comprise that church are still operating out of their brokenness and dysfunction. On one hand, we're all still in process, right? I mean, on one hand, we need to cut each other some slack because there's a learning curve. Some of us have been in the Lord for a long time, and what we struggle with is doing what we know. But there's a bunch of us that are brand new. We're literally engaging with this stuff for the first time. You're being told, hey, you need to forgive. And they're like, I don't understand what you're talking about. How would I do that? Or you need to give away the stuff that you have. Well, why would I give away? If I give away, I don't have anything. You're like, no, no, no. God backfills. You're like, what? There's a bunch of learning that we need to understand. You can't outgive God. You'll hear phrases like that. But what does it mean? Some of us are dealing with it for the first time. So in one sense, we got to cut each other some slack. But on another hand, 
We need to take the personal responsibility seriously that God has given us tools to become healthy and we need to utilize those tools. We don't get to just say, I'm content with my dysfunction because the Holy Spirit is gonna poke and poke and poke. He's gonna keep going, man, why is your anger level so high? Well, you know what? That's just how my dad was. That's just how my mom was. That's just how I am. Nope, that's not right. Poke again. Why is your anger level so high? Okay, what's going on with the depressive stuff? What's going on with the disorders? What's going on? With, and it just pokes and pokes and pokes. And you're like, Lord, leave it alone. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm trying to stretch my muscles and my freedom through you. And you're holding me down really tightly. I am not able to flow the way I need to flow. So actually, I'm not okay with you just saying, I've moved on, because you didn't. And I need you to process that stuff. Now, someone that doesn't have Jesus has to scratch and claw their way to health. But if you are a child of God, you have an indwelling helper that is processing and leading you towards and compelling you into health. We just need to not frustrate his plans, right? I mean, he's trying to get us there. We just have to stop shutting him down and telling him, I'm not dealing with that. I'm not dealing with that. I'm not dealing with that. He's like, well, I am, right? And one of us is gonna win. Jesus was so full of the affirmation from the Father that he was able to stand up against the religious leaders in areas where they were wrong. Okay, that's crazy. Think about it practically. He was a good Jewish boy, taught for 30 years, you do what the religious leaders tell you to do. They were the big dogs, they were the bosses. All of a sudden, he's 30 years old. It's not like he's 60 and has all this life experience to reflect upon. He's a 30-year-old man, and the religious leaders are like, you're wrong, you're out of line. And he said, no. My father told me different. And I don't have to have your stamp of approval for me to be okay. Man, how, we can live like that. Jesus set an example, we can live like that, where we don't have to bend and cave and compromise just to get people to like us. We can live that way. Jesus was so full of grace, that he said on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. While he's being murdered, in the midst of his abuse and trauma, he's releasing. Because he had so much grace. That's power. We can live like that. Jesus was so dedicated to a heavenly agenda that he was able to walk away from ministry opportunities that you and I maybe couldn't because we think that's our identity. Y'all remember this story? Jesus just had this killer night of revival, awakening, power, healing ministry at Peter's house. It's one of the few times in scripture where it says, and he healed them all. I don't know how intense the service has to be to heal them all, but the Holy Spirit was rolling strong. Now you gotta imagine, if everybody's healed, word's getting out, yeah? So they calm it down for the night, they go to sleep. During that time, everybody's going back and getting their friends, 
Wouldn't you? I mean, don't be a jerk and keep Jesus to yourself, right? You wanna go out and go, hey, bring, bring, bring. And so you have all these people that are gonna come for the morning session. Peter gets up and Jesus isn't in his bed. He's like, where's he at? He goes and he finds him and he's praying under a tree somewhere. And he's like, hey, Lord, we gotta get back, man. There's a lot of people waiting for us. He's like, I'm not going back. He's like, what's that? He said, yeah, I'm not going back. My father told me to move on. He's like, no, 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 no. Hold up, we can move on later. You know how many people are waiting on us right now? Like word got out, it was lit last night, right? And everybody's like, woo, so all pumped up, right? I mean, we got charismatics like, ah, freaking out on us. So they're like all over the place and this is our chance. And he goes, yeah, I don't, I'm not going back. I'm moving on. There are some of us that could not walk away from that opportunity. It means too much to us but he knew why he was here. We can live like that. I've cited time and time again, maybe you need to write this down. Christianity is designed from an overflow perspective. Christianity is designed from an overflow perspective. In other words, God has filled us up with so many good things that we can pour them out to others. God never demands that a human being dredge up something good within themselves because they got nothing to grab onto. He pours it into us and then holds us accountable to operate off that fullness. That's why he can bust us, right? He's like, hey, I want you to give 10% away. I don't wanna give 10% away. Hold up, you had nothing. I gave you 100 bucks. I want you to give 10 bucks away. It's my 10 bucks. Okay, stop, you had nothing. I will get all over your case, kid. What are you doing? I want you to give that away. Well, if I give it away, I'm not gonna have, you didn't have anything before. I, clearly, if I gave you 100 bucks, I might have more in my wallet. <laughs> I can give you more money, that's not the point. My point is, you need to give it away, right? For you, your heart. We minister to others because we ourselves have been ministered to by God. We forgive others because we have been forgiven for so much. We are patient with others because we've seen God's infinite patient with us. If we are not feeling full on the inside, that's where the work must begin. Why don't you feel full? Because God's pouring it in, God's pouring it in, God's pouring it in, where's it going? Right? Like some of us have huge cracks in our pots. And it's just flowing out, man. God's throwing in grace. God's throwing in affirmation. God's throwing in love. Boom, it is going like into a black hole right outside. And God's like, hey, I need you to fix that because you're losing everything I'm giving you and you keep telling me you don't have enough to give away to other people. I know I've been giving you tons. Where's it going? Some of us need to heal those fissures, heal those cracks, heal those ruptures so that we can hold what God's pouring into us so we can scoop it up and give it away. That's where it should be coming from. When we operate from our dysfunction, our insecurity, our brokenness, or our scarcity, we hurt the people around us. When we live from our woundedness, people around us can become a commodity to consume in order to feel better. We start looking at people for what they can do for us. 
Raise your hand if any of you are old enough to remember Looney Tunes cartoons. Anybody remember Looney Tunes? All right, fantastic. All right, I saw some people raising their hands for reruns. Okay. Now, in Looney Tunes, that's, of course, where we had Tweety and Sylvester, we had Bugs Bunny and stuff like that. So, super famous. But there was a couple segments they would put on there. Anybody remember the sheepdog? You guys remember the sheepdog and he would check in, right, all the time? And he's like, hey, Frank. Right? And so it's kind of, and then they would fight the whole time. There was another Roadrunner, right? Me, beep, right? And he, pew, he'd take off and Wile E. Coyote and all that stuff. Well, in those two particular programs, they used this common motif where one of them would get super starving hungry. Do you guys remember this? And he would look at the other one and they'd turn into a pork chop. Do you remember? And he's like, whoa. And he's salivating and he's like, why are you looking at me like that? Right? That's what we're like. We're so needy, we're so craving. We see other people as a means to an end. We start looking at what can you do for me? How can you make me feel better? I wanna use you so that I feel better. That's a consumption concept. We seek the beautiful people to affirm our value. We seek the rich in hopes that the crumbs of their table would fall off onto ours. We seek the powerful for our possible opportunities. We seek the popular to believe that we matter. We seek sex to feel loved or powerful. But what we're doing is we're using each other. Sometimes we'll even agree to use one another. And the whole time, God didn't authorize it. Just because you both agree as consenting adults to tear yourselves down doesn't mean it's right. No, we don't do that. That's not how we operate. Jesus did none of that. Jesus never operated that way. That's the way the world works. That's not how we operate. We are of Jesus He didn't need the affirmation from a broken world. He didn't need to hurt people to feel better. He loved because he was full of love. He cared because he had more to give. He healed because the wounds of other people agitated his heart. It was always other-centered and never self-centered. And that's our role model. That's a high bar. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Our love cannot be determined by self-benefit. Our love cannot be determined by self-benefit. You don't get to only love me when I'm nice to you. You don't only get to love me when I help you out. You need to love me when I irritate you. You need to love me when I hurt you. You need to love me, why? Because you love because it's who you are and what you're filled up by. You don't love in reaction, you love on purpose. We have so bought into the world's love that is contingent. It's always contingent on what you can do for me. And the minute you stop serving me, my love faucet shuts off. No wonder we're scared of each other. We're dangerous. But that's not the God love. God talks about things in terms of abundance. It says when the Holy Spirit's in there, rivers of living water flow through you. In ancient times, living water was running water. It means whatever passes through, more is on its way. You have an abundance, not a scarcity. Turn with me if you haven't to James chapter two, verse one. James chapter two, verse one. 
kind of dive into this. We'll do the first four verses and we'll talk about it and then we'll do the next couple verses and talk about it, right? Once again, Pastor James lays down some incredible material. Here's what he says. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality or favoritism as you hold the faith or as you live out your Christian life in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly or church, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you're like, oh, come here, sit in the good place, or then you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, meaning played favorites? Have you not become judges, meaning decided people's value? And have not you done that with evil thoughts, meaning from a selfish place? He's like, yeah, we don't do that here. You see, the world's code says you only live once, go out, consume all that you can, experience all that you can, and look out for yourself. That's what the world says. Christianity says the polar opposite. It says God has given you much, give away as much as you can and make it about other people and God, not yourself. That's a pretty radical shift. So he's trying to explain, you guys, no, 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 no. This is possible and I need you to live in a different way. So first thing, I'm seeing this in your church, he said. You guys, you're showing favoritism and it's really weird. Like, it doesn't seem like Jesus at all. What's favoritism? Treating people differently based on the benefit to yourself. Are we doing that? And you're like, well, pastor, this is kind of an easy one for me because I'm not in church leadership. I can't really do what he's talking about. All right, well, let's talk about what he's talking about. What's the context? That someone would come into a church and if they're wealthy, they're treated different than if they're poor. Now, could something like that actually occur? Absolutely. I mean, let's talk about you pull the curtain back. It's a temptation for every leader. And here's why. It's a very practical reason. You see, if a bunch of people come into the church and the church is supported by the gifts of the people that go to the church, if they don't come, bills don't get paid. There's some that come in and contribute and some that come in and contribute a lot and some that come in and don't contribute at all. So as a business of trying to keep the lights on, we can't do the ministry that we're doing if the bills aren't paid, is that correct? So practically speaking, there are some that allow us to do more ministry than others. So there's this temptation to try to coddle and bring in more people that can contribute more out of a sheer practical reason of going, listen, I've got important stuff to do, but I need you to help me keep the lights on. That's a temptation all the time. As a matter of fact, it can go so far as, oh, don't mess with them. They're the ones that are contributing significantly. If a poor person walks out of the church, you lost a person and maybe it hurt your heart. If a rich person walks out of the church, you lost a person, hurt your heart, and you are now going to fire a staff member because you cannot afford them anymore. That is very tempting to bend to that pressure, is it not? Should not all leaders have to go through and constantly analyze? And God said, hold up, we don't do that. That's not the way we operate. Now, there's nothing wrong with discipling gifting. 
If somebody has a worship gift, we're gonna go ahead and disciple them and pay attention because they can bring more in the areas of worship than someone that's not in worship. You can say, listen, God has given you a Midas touch. Everything you touch turns to gold. That's a gift to be stewarded. I can come along and you can, can do incredible ministry at the church if you manage your money rightly. That's a pure motive. Once you step out of that, it starts getting sketchy. You tracking with me? It's a temptation. You have to look it in the eye and say, we're not bending from here. That's tough. But let's say it gets more personal because favoritism is not just a church leadership problem, is it? So how's it work in your life? I thought of a couple analogies, a couple examples, maybe they're a little bit more in line with your life. Have you ever made more time and given more attention to an influential person because you thought it would help you later? Right? Let's talk about it. You're a student. Middle school, high school, college, whatever. You're a student. Have you ever wanted to just hang with the popular kids, the good-looking kids, and not the other kids? Why? Just analyze it. Why? Why is that in your head? Why is that a thing for you? What are you getting out of it? What needs to be affirmed in you? Why does it make you feel inherently more valuable when these people pay attention to you versus these people? And if y'all think that that stops after being a young adult, that is incorrect. All the rest of us are dealing with it too. Why do you have the friends and acquaintances you have? Right, let's talk about it. Have you ever seen somebody in need? You know dang well they're needy. You're not gonna get anything from them and they're gonna take stuff from you. Have you ever wanted to walk the other way? course you have, right? There's that temptation all the time to be able to go, I'm going to end up less. It's not an even give and take. They come up and they hang with me and I feel filled up and then they feel filled up and we're all like, woo, we're good buddies. Well, you know darn well they are extra grace required, joy sucking. You understand what I'm talking about? You're like, I know you need something from me. And so you're like, woo, go the other way, right? Temptation to do that. Okay, here's another one. Have you ever made wealthy friends or acquaintances so you can play with their expensive toys and live on their coattails? Just think about why you have the friends and acquaintances you do, right? Oh, do they have a cabin that you can use? Oh, do they have a boat? Oh, do they have it, right? Why are you making the connections? Because here's the thing. A connection with another human being is actually very difficult, it's very hard to move through the awkwardness of getting to know somebody and bonding with them and trying to have good conversations if, you don't, if it's not easy. You went through all that to establish with somebody. Why? What are you getting out of it? I don't believe, and I don't have any respect for the idea of we're just gonna put on the Christian face and pretend like things aren't a big deal. Oh, sin doesn't have any control over me. Okay, look sin in the face, call it what it is, and deal with it, right? That's how we have to handle it. So let's talk about money for a second. Money is super attractive. It is super fascinating. Why? Because money allows for stuff. It allows escapism, treats, toys, freedoms, fun. It allows security, protection, and safety. Money is super attractive. And what's so great about it is you can use it for whatever your particular hurt or craving is. 
You can morph it for whatever you want. It's like a drug that promises you a solution to your problems, or you can pretend your problems don't exist for a little bit. That's what money does. So money is super attractive, very, very tempting. But when we get around it and we want it too much, we turn into the Lord of the Rings golem. It starts changing us, it's morphing us, we become ugly, we get bent by it. And that's why Jesus constantly warned and he was like, guys, money's not bad, but dang, the way that you're letting it own you, that's bad. You just gotta be careful, man, this is some powerful stuff. Gotta be careful how you use it, how you think about it. I do wanna share with you one thing that you may not have considered and that is this, let's say anybody has an extreme amount of social capital. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're extremely good looking, right? Now, if you're like, he's talking about me. Okay, <laughs> maybe I'm talking about you, but I, I, I don't know. Well, let us decide that, <laughs> not you, <laughs> right? It's funny, the pastor's talking about me, okay. Let's say you're super, super good looking. Not like kind of good looking. You're like Chris Hemsworth good looking, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, that does stuff to people. People act different. Let's say you're super wealthy. Not like you live in a gated community, but like you own a gated community. <laughs> you understand what I'm talking about? Uh, let's say that you are super influential. You're super popular. You're super powerful. It's interesting because a lot of us in our times, we kind of daydream and we're like, that would, be, that would be awesome. Here's what you don't realize. It's incredibly isolating. And here's why. All those people have to second guess every interaction they go through. Why is somebody being nice to me? What do they want? Are they friends with me because of what I can give them? Are they trying to get up next to me because of what I can do for them? Are they around me because they wanna use my body? What is going on? Now, you may be able to check off a lot of people and just go, hey, you know, it's, they don't need me for anything, but, but you always have to ask the question. And when you, like, let's say, for example, you're super wealthy, you don't know who's your real friends, you always have to think they have an ulterior motive and it makes you wanna pull away and pull away and pull away and some of the richest people in the world are the most lonely because you can't trust the people around you. You're like, nobody acts like that. Hold on a second. So there's a, there's a couple in this church and their oldest adopted daughter um, came to church a while back. I just found out about this. And I met her, the, the, the parents introduced me to her. And I was like, hey, how you doing? I was just checking up on her. And are you doing good? How did the service go for you? And stuff like, and here's the funny thing. I don't even remember the interaction. They went home and she was like a, a young adult. And she said to her mom, mom, that was cool when we met Pastor Lance. He's the first man that ever looked me in the eye and said he wanted to bless me and didn't need anything from me. How messed up of a world do I need to be the first one and you're way down in life? Come on. People bend and they do weird stuff. They just start, because they're so needy. 
They always need something, right? And it makes them treat you different. Okay, let's take it from that extreme thing and let's take it all the way down here to a practical level. Let's talk about what I do. So I'm a pastor of a, a large church. I'm on the radio, write books, podcast, all that stuff, right? So there's a certain celebrity status to that. Not only that, but what I do for a living is I'm a senior pastor, which to a lot of people is kind of like, oh, that's holier, right? He has got the little collar and everything, right? <laughs> now, here's what's interesting. Everybody treats me different. I know everybody puts on a face hanging out with me. It's because either one way or another way, sometimes it, this is the part that drives me crazy. I'll meet somebody and they find out I'm a pastor and instantly change their language. <laughs> oh, you're a pastor. I would hate to offend your delicate ears. <laughs> drives me crazy. I'm like, come on. I didn't even hear that stuff, but they don't, the, suddenly they change. And then uh, the other side, right? I meet somebody in the world and they hate Christians and they find out I'm a pastor and they're like, you're the problem with this. And I'm like, dude, why are you, I don't represent all Christianity, right? But people kind of, they, they're a little different with me, even my staff, right? They know that I'm the boss. I sign their checks. I could fire them, right? They're, they're always giving me like the better picture. And when everyone keeps changing around you, it's really hard to know who likes you for you and who likes you for who you are. You know what I'm saying? What you can do. If it's happening to me in that little way all the time. Now, once again, with the majority of all of you, I get to check off and go, no, they like me for me. But I have to ask the question and that's weird. It's very isolating. So my point is, we have to be very, very cautious on how we treat people. Okay, let's pick it up. Verse five. He said, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name of God by which you are called? Okay, hold up. Clearly, he's not just talking about people that have a big bank account or people that have a good job, right? He's like, they oppress you. They're dragging you into court. They're blaspheming God. Okay, why does he call them rich? Okay, to do proper exegesis or biblical interpretation, you always, if something doesn't seem right on the surface and it's not quite fitting, you gotta dig deeper and say, are they talking about a figure of speech? Are they talking about something that they all knew what they were saying, but outsiders don't know? Is there what's called an idiom happening, right? And you're like, well, I don't know, let's dig into it. Okay, here's what's happening. There was a classification called the rich. You know how sometimes in the Bible it would say the phrase, the tax collectors and sinners? That was a group title. It meant those that were outcasts religiously. But they used the title, tax collectors and sinners. Now there were people in there that had, a, they were doing certain bad things. There were some people that were just uncool, right? But they used a title. There is a title called the rich and the poor. It doesn't mean somebody that happens to have wealth. It doesn't mean somebody that doesn't happen to have wealth. It means we're talking about groups of stereotypical, theoretical people. So he said, all right, 
Let's talk about this. The rich, in their mind, was when you are an oppressed people, they were under the Roman Empire, in general, it was very hard to be rich as an oppressed people. Usually, you had to cut corners, you had to manipulate your way through. So you were, let's say, a tax collector. You worked with the Roman government, you were considered a traitor, you would have more money, and he was, that's the people they're talking about that got rich through bad means. And he's like, guys, if you're inviting the bad guys into your church going, man, here, have a front row seat because you know they can cash a check for you, what are you doing? That's not right. And then when they looked at the poor, the viewpoint was, in the Old Testament, it says that God is near the downhearted. Meaning that when we suffer and we don't have anywhere else to go, God draws near to us and ministers to us personally. Out of the desperation of not being able to escape, poor are forced to look up and rely on God. And they said, in that moment, God is close and you are more likely to offer your heart to him. So they would consider the poor a blessed state from a religious perspective. So he said, you, you church leaders, I'm watching you treat the rich like they're the coolest thing in the world. You're completely ignoring the people that God is focusing on right now. What is wrong with you? We don't do that. Look at the answer in verse eight. If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing great, just keep it simple. We love people because God loved us. You love your neighbor as yourself. You don't treat everybody differently. Verse nine, but if you show favoritism or partiality, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, these are Jews, right? A lot of them are Jews. So when he says the phrase, the law, everyone was like, oh, I know what that means. Maybe you don't know what that means. Here's what it means. When God began the nation of Israel and began to put some order to it through Moses, he gave him the 10 commandments and then started expressing what his heart was, what they're supposed to do, what they're not supposed to do, rules, regulations, codes. All of that is collected in the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch. It's called the Torah. It's called the law. The law is how a sinful people can interact with one another and interact with God. It was God's code for Israel. Everyone goes, I know that. He said, well, hold on a second. You guys say that matters because it mattered all the way through Jesus's life till he went to the cross. It was an old covenant, an old contract. It was the way it was built. He said, you guys are doing this favoritism. You don't realize you're violating the law. They're like, wow, you're making it sound like it's serious. I am making it serious. That's my point, right? Look at this, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. See, this is where he's saying the compartmentalization we talked about a couple weeks ago, this is no bueno. Why? Because you're like, all right, there's 10 commandments. I'm pretty good at eight of them. That's a passing grade, right? Right? A little, little bad on the murdering, you know? But I do not covet. And you're like, uh, I don't think that's how it works, right? Right? It's an all or nothing concept. 
if you break it, you're a breaker. <laughs> this is kind of how it works. And he's like, yeah, it's, a, it's kind of an all or nothing thing. Now, their agreement was blessing, curse, if you do it, because he was saying, listen, my Jewish people, you're not like everybody else. I actually made you to be a word picture of me, so you don't get to act however you want. I'm gonna give you all kinds of weird rules and everything, because you're going to be a display case to showcase what I'm like. So I actually need you to do this to the T. If you do it well, I will super bless you. If you do it wrong, I will flat out curse you. I need a people to shine me. That was the agreement. Problem is, you had to do it perfect. One break, ruin it all. You're like, that's impossible. I know, that's why we needed Jesus. Jesus comes in, in that system and says, hey guys, I'm Jewish. I'm really good at this holiness thing. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna do it perfect the way you guys were always supposed to do it. And I'm gonna make a little record of perfection and I'm gonna take care of it, and I'm gonna say, hey, do you wanna trade? Like your broken one, can I trade you for my good one? So I'm gonna hand you the good one, I'm gonna take your broken one, I'm gonna put it on my shoulder, I'm gonna take like all of you, anyone, anyone that's willing to give me your code and trade with me, I'll put it on my shoulders, because the, the, the law says that if you do something bad, you actually have to die. So I don't want you to die, I'll do it. I'll take that on my shoulders, I'll die on the cross, I will pay, because I'm, I'm a God man, I will pay for all of your sins and that way the law doesn't condemn you anymore. It's gone. The Bible says in Romans, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's gone, it's done with. He said, and you got a perfect record because I gave you mine. You now live in a different state. It's no longer just a king and a vassal, it is now a father and a child. Now all of a sudden, the sin isn't our problem. The sin has already been fixed. So now what it is, is a family relationship issue. So I'm still gonna discipline you. I'm still gonna get involved and get up in your face. And why? Because I'm trying to make you better. I'm a really good dad. But what I'm not interested in, I'm not interested in destroying you. I'm not looking for the wrath to come upon you. Wrath isn't for my kids. So I just need you to know, you're living in a state of grace. When you mess up, you're still my kiddo. On your worst day, you're still my child. Even on those days when you are on my last nerve, <laughs> you're just my kid. I'm never gonna stop loving you. Will I discipline you and try to get you back on track? Yeah, I will. But I don't ever walk away from you. That's the new code. That's what we live under because of what Jesus did. So he says this, verse 12. So speak and act as those who are gonna be judged under that law of freedom. But judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Remember, mercy triumphs over judgment. What was his point? While I'm pouring out all of this kindness and grace to you, you don't get to be jerks to each other, right? Oh, well, I'm all free in Jesus and I'm gonna be mean and hold everybody... Listen, if you are constantly nailing everybody else to the wall for what they did wrong, you think I'm not gonna come up on you? You think I'm not going to nail you to the wall and hold you on a very short leash? Why? Because I'm trying to train it out of you. Stop being mean to other people. I've been so infinitely kind to you. I've cut you slack. I've given you grace. I've been patient. 
Where is that attitude for everybody else? Be careful, kids. You're supposed to be like me. And that is our bar, right? Our bar for living, our goal for living is not the trauma of our past. Our bar for living is not our mistakes and failures. Our bar of living is Jesus. So we shoot for that. Okay, so here's how we're going to close out. We're talking about how we've treated other people and commodity and consuming one another and pain and hurt and mess. And There's some of us that are carrying around some hurt and pain that Jesus would like to get rid of. There's actually some hurt deep down that you can't even imagine being free from. Boy, you have locked that in the thickest of safe. But Jesus knows. I'm going to walk you through a process called a guided prayer. It's a little bit of time to reflect, and I'm going to have us use our imagination. Do you understand that your imagination is from God? Right? When he says, I'm giving you a hug, you're supposed to imagine God giving you a hug, right? Imagination is not bad, it's super good. So, what I'm gonna do is I'm going to walk you through a process in prayer. So, whatever posture it is that you get where you can chill out, I need you to do that, right? Unless you're laying in the aisle and it's weird. Okay. Stay in your chair, <laughs> but um, get into that. Some of you, it's like you can let your eyes wander. Some of you, it's looking at the cross. Some of you, most of you will just be closing your eyes, right? It's minimizing distraction. I'm gonna have um, uh, Mr. Rayon come on out and he's going to lay down a bed of worship because it helps minimize distractions, right? You know, oh, somebody sneezed. Oh my gosh, it's toxic, right? You know, okay, whatever. We're blocking all that out and we're just having a date with our Lord, all right? So as he plays, we're going to pray. So let me just begin in a prayer and then I'll guide you through this process, all right? Just you and Jesus, here we go. Heavenly Father, we come to you with um, worn spirits. Some of us, Lord, are downhearted in our soul. Some of us have been operating off dysfunction so long, it's normal to us. Some of us can't even feel you or feel any emotion or feel any bonding because we've allowed our trauma to dictate our freedom. God, there's some of us that we were the wounder, we were the persecutor, we were the abuser, and we've never let ourselves go. Some of us, Lord, our sins have not been confessed out in a way that we have ever felt free. So Holy Spirit, I just pray during this short time of prayer that you would guide us to release what needs to be released, to bond with what needs to be bonded with, and to take on your perspective and not just one of brokenness. We invite you in and ask you to heal us. All right, so we're gonna use our imagination. Here's what I want you to do. You're, sit, you're gonna be sitting in a room. You're sitting in a room. The room is decorated in whatever way makes you feel peaceful and comfortable. There's nothing scary. There's nothing harsh. You're just relaxed there. And then walking in the door comes Jesus. 
He comes in and he sits in a chair opposite you and he looks you in the eye. He's not scared. He's not angry. There's that deep, calm, and extraordinary love. And he's gonna ask you a question, and then we're gonna be quiet for a moment, and I want you to answer the question, because here's the question Jesus is asking you. What is hurting you, my child, so badly? Why is your soul downcast? What's that pain deep down? What did you do? What did they do to you? I just need you to tell him what hurts. Just silently in your mind. the betrayal, maybe it was the hurt, maybe it was the abuse, maybe it's just simply loss and grief, maybe it was a schism in a relationship, maybe it has to do with your spouse or your sibling, a friend, an ex, just pour it all out to him, and as you tell him all of it, he's going to keep saying, what else, kiddo? What else? And as you're sharing it, I just want you to picture it like piling up in your hands out in front of you. It's just piling up in there like little bricks of yuck. Every time you say it, another one just comes out, but it's not in you anymore. It's now out in your hands. Just keep telling him what's wrong, what's hurting, what can you not get past, what's hard to forgive, what happened to you? Tell him he's not scared. He's not going to run away. There's no judgment, no frowning. Just that same constant, sweet compassion. Now, if you got as much out of it as you can, You got it in your hands now. So here's what I want you to do is I want you to ask Jesus a question and I want you to listen very carefully to his response. Here's your question. Jesus, what do you want me to do with this? And I want you to listen. What does he say? Sometimes he gets right to the point, huh? I would guess by his nature, he probably said something like, well, kiddo, I want you to give it to me. Let me take care. Maybe he said, that's not for you. Why don't you drop it on the ground? Maybe he said, throw it away. Maybe he said, I'm going to incinerate it. I don't know what he said, but I need you to do what he said. Picture yourself doing that. 
Now, if it's still sitting in your lap and you're frozen there, I want you to imagine Jesus rises up from his chair, walks over and very sweetly says, can I have that please? And I want you to offer it to him. And he takes it in his capable hands and he walks away and puts it down where you can't see it anymore and then sits down and looks back at you. And in this moment, I want you to use your imagination of what your day would look like, what a given week would look like if you didn't have to carry that weight on your shoulder anymore. Like you're not really holding that person accountable. Like you're not really making them pay. All you're doing is hurting yourself. What if you were able to release all that? What if you were able to forgive yourself? What if you were able to confess it out to the Lord? Let's say it was a sin you've never confessed. Now you're owning it. Lord, I know what it is. I know what I've become. I know what I did. The Bible says that if you give it to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible is certain that when you hand it to him, he is more capable than you are. I want you to release it to him, release it to him. All the pain, all the hurt, just give it over to him. He knows what to do with it. And if that was the case, how free would you feel? You don't need to go home heavy. You don't need to go to bed heavy. You don't need to wake up heavy. You don't need to carry any of that garbage. Jesus, the capable one, has got it. I want you to imagine that freedom. And the only reason you can imagine it is because Jesus is able. Your imagination is not bigger than your God's ability. The only reason you can picture it is because he can picture it first. He is strong, he is able, he is loving, and he is kind. I want you to release everything you can into his hands and leave it there. Now in a moment, we're gonna close the service and we'll have the prayer team come up here. You can always process more with them. You can just stay here and hang out in the sanctuary for a little bit. The other music's gonna come on. You don't have to rush out. But I'm just gonna pray a washing, cleansing prayer over all of us so we walk out of here with some hope and some freedom. Let's just pray. Holy Spirit, in this holy moment, we wanna praise you and praise you and praise you that the only reason we have freedom is because of you. The only reason we can lift our head up high is because of you. The only victory we have in our life is because of you. So we wanna give you praise today. We wanna thank you for your infinite patience while we kept wading into our garbage. We wanna thank you for your loving eyes to be able to give us a safety to unlock that terrible place. That God, that you have not 
not walked into us with judgment, but you walked into us with release and freedom. So right now we praise your name and we ask Holy Spirit that you would anoint each and every one of us with a joy, with a lightheartedness, with an encouragement in our spirit, with an anointing that we might be able to release. And whenever the enemy comes with lies, we're able to reject them in the name of Jesus. We just pray all of your freedom into our lives. We proclaim in the name of Jesus, freedom and health and wholeness over each and every one of our hearts and our spirits. God, would you do what only you know how to do and we will continue to praise you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful weekend.